0: Would you once again pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, even as I call you that by name, Lord, somehow the words of this story seem to take on more vivid color for you are a Heavenly Father whose eye is ever out for us. And Lord, with with a sense of care and a love and Lord, an understanding, but Lord, a delight as well in what you take of your creation, and Lord, we are yours. Help us to get back to that place of first love and delight, and Lord, help us to be able to set aside all other agendas that, Lord, have have somehow crusted our souls so that with freshness we might be able to turn to you and, and understand the openness of your heart and the joy, Lord, you find in us so that we might come to you, Lord, with a greater sense of commitment and and reliance upon you, Lord, and an abandonment to your grace. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now this morning I'd like to return with me, if you will, to the story that we began last week, the story told by Jesus in Luke chapter 15, uh, the story which is known as the parable of the prodigal son. Now, the first part of that story, uh, the part we studied last week, you have to admit, is so familiar to so many. Not just the way Jesus told it, but I think just some, from some of the reaction, just in talking about it, from the way in which so many of us have actually lived it. Just how many uh, have, have lived with a, the private pain of, of a family in distress, the, the statistics are really too many we've even, in fact, given it a name that has become all too common, and it seems that everyone is able to describe their own family with. It's called the dysfunctional family. And as many of you attest, there is not only an exquisite pain in having a prodigal son or daughter, but there's also an added sense of shame and embarrassment that comes with having a life and a family, which is defined by dysfunction. Especially at Christmas time, I find that to be the case. When I get Christmas cards from all my old friends touting the achievements and the successes of their families. I I don't know, somehow when I read those things, I have two reactions. One is, really? And the other part is, oh man. (laughs) Because I look at my own family, they are human. And I love them. But Lord, I know I have dysfunctions. And it can make you bow your head in in a lonely silence, can it not, n'est-ce pas? You feel somewhat embarrassed about all these things. And that's probably one of the reasons why I really love this whole story. Because in it is the revelation that you and I are not alone. We do not bow our heads in lonely silence. One of, the, probably at one of the lowest moments in my own prodigal moment with my wife and I as we found ourselves worried about a son who had, had wandered off, uh, we found ourselves in worship service only to find that in the bulletin the sermon was the prodigal son. <laughs> when I saw it, my heart just sank and I thought, oh great, just pile it on. But instead, I really discovered something wonderful because tucked into the very beginning of the message, the pastor said something that opened my heart to a tremendous sense of relief and healing. His thoughts began with a very simple statement, which may almost sound silly in its simplicity. He said, there is no such thing as a perfect family. I carry that particular line into Christmas with me when I get those cards. There is no such thing... As a perfect family. You see, for years in my ministry, I've approached the topic of family with the idea that, that there is a benchmark for all of us, which is called perfection, and that whatever teaching and counsel and advice that I would give as a pastor would be based upon that benchmark and geared to getting people up to that level so that they can then get on with their life. But the pastor here said, There is no such thing as a perfect family. And he did it with such tenderness and grace. As he then turned to the story and asked the question, follow with me on this. In the parable of the prodigal son, who does the father symbolize? God, right? Are we all in agreement on that? The heavenly father, right? Well then, he said, if that is the case, in reading the story, you then begin to realize that God himself, the heavenly father, has what I guess we would have to call a dysfunctional family himself. And if God, the God of omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence, omni-everything, has a family that is defined not by perfection, but by dysfunction, then maybe I am not so alone. (laughs) And just maybe, to his eyes, I need not be ashamed, but in fact encouraged, because he understands fully and has willingly chosen to love his way through the brokenness and disappointment with a divine patience and grace and hope. and As I bow my head in some degree of lonely isolation, I am not alone. He is right there with me because he knows exactly. And I am so thankful that God has chosen to empower each one of us with an ability to love our way with family, both our own family as well as his family, the church at large, in the very same way. Now, I cannot tell you, begin to tell you how much that insight helped me through the dark days and continues to help me even now. And as we return to our study in the Gospel of Luke, to this parable, it becomes evident how important God's persistent and patient heart for the lost really is because, truth be told, it's not just the prodigal who tests the father's patience. There is a little bit of rebel in each one of us, whether we see ourselves as prodigal or not. We might even see ourselves as perfect, but not. The bulk of the story deals with the relationship between the father and an obvious prodigal son. You see that in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. My guess is that most people would automatically think of the younger son in the story as the primary object of this entire parable. There he is, rude, brash, bullheaded, loose-living, profligate. I love the words of that. I bet you didn't wake up this morning thinking that you'd hear the word profligate, would you? No, you've heard it, okay? You know, there he is in in, in all of his sordid glory. His story serves as a symbol of one extreme of that spectrum of rebellion. But in turning to verse 25, we discover that there's another son who isn't functioning the way he ought to either. And suddenly the story becomes actually, a better title and a heading for this is the parable of the elder pig-headed brother. In ways, his story becomes the other extreme end of the same spectrum of rebellion, and it may not be as obvious, but it is simply just as real, and just maybe, maybe even more relevant to us than we would care to admit. So let me introduce to you this quiet rebel in Luke chapter 15, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has brought him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Pleaded with him. On the surface, the contrast between the brothers could be confusing. On the surface... The society would look at the young brother and and make the call, what a spoiled brat, an ingrate, a loser, and then turn to the older brother and say, respectable, deserving, responsible. But little did anyone realize that inside this older brother possessed a a hardened pride that was matched by a cold and seething anger. Anger. And all it took was the sound of a party and the news that his little brother had returned to expose this heart of sin, authored by his pride and nurtured by his intolerance. The parable of the prodigal son has become the parable of, as I said, the pig-headed brother. And as I look at the audience that Jesus was speaking to here in Luke 15, I have to think that the real point of this whole story may have been, in fact, aimed at the older brothers, the Pharisees, the respectable, the deserving and responsible citizens who themselves may never have been given any cause to face their own heart of sin. And so Jesus gets to the heart of the matter with a discovery that can be, in fact, a little bit painful. So listen to the rawness of his words in verse 29. As the father was pleading to him, it says, And he answered to his father, Look, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. Now, i got to tell you, there is so much here, I don't even know where to begin it's like the, 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 the lid of the kettle is popped off and pfft, it just all boils over. How about the anger? Do you see that? He is so alienated. <clears throat> he can't even get the word brother out of his mouth. <laughs> this this, this yeah, younger brother who comes home is your son. <laughs> Not my brother. He's your son. And he doesn't hold anything back. He lets the father have it right between the eyes. Now, we live in a fairly rude culture, so the first word out of his mouth may not really seem to be too out of place. Look, but given the culture of the day, no one ever talked to a father that way. No one. But he leads it with that insult. The first word out of his mouth is an insult. Look. And and so there's anger, and and it's followed by a flood of resentment. Look at his choice of words. I have slaved for you, taken your orders. Now, for whatever reason, he saw his relationship with his father as that of a slave and not a son. Do you see that there? Consider any other combination of words that he could have used. It could have been, I've been your partner, or I've served you faithfully, or I've been careful to please you. I've been careful to forward your will. I have been been responsible with your desires to please you, to give you joy. Words like that, that would reflect the relationship of a father and a son, but here the words come out of the vocabulary of slavery. I have followed your commands. And the relationship has come down to something of utter bitter servitude. And whatever relationship he had with his father, whatever first love there may have ever been between them, it had long since disappeared. So you have anger, you have resentment, and that resentment spills all over his brother. He goes on to say, this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes. Now, I just read that one little clip because it reveals so much. Stop and think. What do we know, really, from the earlier passage of the younger brother's activities. now All we really get is a generic statement in verse 13, if you look at it, that he squandered his wealth in wild living. Wild living. Hmm, I wonder what that means. Older brothers will be glad to give you an answer to that question because they have been keeping the secrets and keeping the score. I would never have known the prostitutes were in the picture unless the older brother had been keeping his eye open and knew and then cared to spill the beans. Parents, you know how it is with your kids. They, 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 they know things about each other that are secret to you and just give them a chance and they'll be glad to let you know. <laughs> and Sometimes they make a mistake. I still remember when my two boys were quite small. My younger son came and he told me, Dad, you... You need to spank BJ. And I asked him, why? I, why? He says, because he hit me back. <laughs> Give me a break. And parents say, uh, you know, your kids know secrets about each other. And, and, and this one has, has been keeping his brother's record secret, but now he brings it out to demand payment. Now, I know his words say a lot of his own own sense of pity. He goes on to say, you've never given me a goat. But his attitude has his brother in the crosshairs. You see, he's put a price on his brother's head, even in that little simple statement. My brother is equal to a goat. And you've given him a, a fatted calf. Stop and think about it. This is the third parable that Jesus has given. In rapid succession all expected to reveal God's heart for the lost, and in each case, the object of the three parables is that that thing which has been lost has a certain value. In verse 4, it is a sheep. It has a certain value. In verse 8, there's a coin, and it certainly has a certain value. But in this third parable, the object is a human being, and while you can put a dollar figure onto the first two parables, it's only the big brother here who decides to put a price on his brother's head. Not the father, but the older brother, and according to the father, the value of the human life is beyond measure, but according to the older brother who has a hardened heart, with an attitude that keeps score, and insists that sin must be punished, forgiveness must be earned, and kindness must be deserved, and repentance must be Proven, they will accept nothing less because that younger brother is a goat. Which is so sad because such things are, in, are the father's business not his. Insisting on such things doesn't do a thing for the younger, uh, younger brother but it do, does do something to the older brothers. It puts a wall between them and their father. I read this and I realize that the real victim here in all of this is the older brother. Some of you may remember last week at the first part of the story that I explained how an inheritance had been divided. That given the standards of the day, when the father liquidated his estate, the younger brother walked away with one-third of the fortune, but at this very same time, the older brother had already made out like a bandit with two-thirds of the father's estate. In a blink of an eye, he was rich. But what good did it do to him? In his mind, he was a slave, not to his father, but to his anger to his resentment, to his bitterness. His sin had rendered him spiritually bankrupt and in as much poverty of soul as his brother had been in the pig pen. And if his brother was lost in sin and had to hit bottom to come to his senses and turn back home, he, this older and respectable and responsible but sinful brother, would have to face the ugly reality of his pride in order to find the softness of heart in order to return home to his father. And what is is remarkable is to see how the father so patiently cares for him with the same gracious, sacrificial, seeking love that he had for the younger son. Look at verse 15 again, the action of the father's care. First in verse 28, the father goes out to the son to plead with him. The Greek word used means to call forth from alongside or within. He doesn't go out to scold face to face. The word actually paints a picture of him standing with his arm around his son to be together with, to plead with. He's not out to scold or to argue. His words are designed to reach into the son's heart to a place that just might flicker once again with life and with love. It is an appeal that is made to the common ground that they share. Some of you know what that's like when the Holy Spirit comes alongside, puts his arm around you, and then looks with his fingers to find that chink in your armor and gives it a tug and pries it back to a place where suddenly hope becomes alive once again. And in verse 32, I think that the father knew that, the, that, that what word would reach his son. He says, my son, not my business partner, not my heir... He says, My son. And again, the Greek word here is so much more than what we have translated. The word is tekton, which means little boy. My little boy. It's a, it's a tender term. And, and, and just using that, 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 that term took the two of them back to a place, a kinder moment where nothing stood between them. Picture that moment. My little boy. My little boy. My little boy. There are such places in the human heart. And it has been my experience as a pastor that they exist in even the most hardened heart. That desire to be accepted. That desire to be brought to a place where you belong. A chance to be able to set aside your doubt, your fear, your drives, your demands, and simply enjoy the simple pleasure of being that child of God. My little boy. My little girl. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate, I emphasize that, we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And there was a confession in, in, in these words that are wrapped around that word Had. He had to celebrate. For whatever reason, God, the Heavenly Father, has within himself a need in his heart to seek the lost and to find the lost and to welcome the lost as they come home. He, he just can't help it when he looks at you. He has got to celebrate, it says here. And the older brother had just come to take that part of God for granted. Not realizing that for him, every day was, in fact, that same celebration. We, we sing of that in the hymn, Great is thy faithfulness. O oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with you. And morning by morning, new mercies I see. Every day was a celebration. And those are the facts. And so with each of these three parables in Luke 15, there was no doubt that on God's side of the equation, heaven is already prepared for a party. And so we have here a a skillful tale told by Jesus, and and, and, and in it he gives every single one of us enough to find ourselves in the story, to identify with one of the brothers or maybe somewhere in between. And then he leaves the story open. You'll notice that in this story there is no formal ending. You don't have this, and they lived happily ever after. We are not told, one, whether the younger son straightened up and flew right for the rest of his life, nor, two, whether the older brother went in, broke his heart open to his brother, and then embraced him and began to rejoice along with the father and everybody else. We're not given that. Both issues are really left open and I have to think they are left open for one single reason because it's up to you to decide how the story will end. The only solid piece to this story is the father. His part of the story and his ending of the story has already been written and and is standing steady and sure with arms open wide even in this moment right now. But... It's up to you to write your story. <laughs> he, the father's story is already determined. He loves his little children. He loves you. He has a plan for their lives. He has a plan for your life, and better yet, he is here to make it happen. But, but, but the question comes, what does it take for the children to, to join him? There is a single word that is repeated throughout this passage, It is pictured by the younger son and it is presented to the elder son and it's the word that you would have just in terms of theology, the word repent. It's a deliberate conscious turning of heart it's that moment where the opportunity and the invitation is given for you to be able to turn away from your sin in order to return back to your home. And for some, that turn may be very obvious. That distance of lifestyle is evident. But for others, maybe for you, it is a little bit more subtle. You've come to church. You've served your time. You've given your tithes. You've followed the rules. You've slaved the commands but the fact remains, service and proximity to God is not the same thing as allowing him to put his arms around you and touch you heart to heart. And for that to happen, there needs to be a brokenness, a humility to hear the name that he has for you on his lips. My son. My daughter. My little boy. My little girl. My family. Those are spoken from a heart of grace. Two hearts ready to receive grace. And that's what he's always had for you. So we take this to heart, the last of the verses. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. We have to celebrate. We have to be glad. Your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost and he is found. How about you? How about you? How about you? Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, again, before you no secrets are held, no thoughts, nothing is hidden. You know it all. And you know us all, for you have made us, and made us in such a way that we are, in fact, not just machines off a conveyor belt, but children of a heavenly Father. I pray that you would open our eyes to the wonder of that relationship, so that we might be able to turn to you once again, realizing that the gift of grace is a gift of joy that you would soften us, Lord, and that you would open us, and that, Lord, you would turn us to you, that, Lord, our faces might always be set in your direction so that we might be able to see the blessing of the one whose face is always at ours. Lord, bless us for, his, for your face has shined upon us. So, Lord, in that discovery, Lord, we now humbly give ourselves to you setting aside all other things, other agendas, Lord, that, that passion that would drive us away from you, like the prodigal son, or the bitterness that, Lord, would build a wall within you, Lord, that we set it aside, so that, Lord, we might with freedom now simply trust ourselves to you, that we might hear your voice, my son, my daughter, and might respond to you saying, my, my Lord, my, my King, my God, my Heavenly Father. Give us, Lord, that power and that strength and that ability and that joy. Through the power of your spirit, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Amen.